Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and I write the Dear Therapist Advice column for The Atlantic. And I'm Guy Winch. I'm the author of Emotional First Aid, and I write the Dear Guy Advice column for TED. And this is Dear Therapists. Each week, we invite you into a real session where we help people confront the problems in their lives and then give them actionable advice and have them report back to let us know what happened when they did what we suggested. So sit back and welcome to today's session. This week, a man whose wife of 40 years has passed away wonders how to grieve while also moving forward in a new relationship. She would say in an accusatory way, you simply haven't had enough time. You haven't stopped grieving. But this was an excuse to put some distance between us. First, a quick note. Dear Therapists is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute medical or psychological advice and is not a substitute for professional healthcare advice, diagnosis, or treatment. By submitting a letter, you are agreeing to let iHeartMedia use it in part or in full, and we may edit it for length and clarity. In the sessions you'll hear, all names have been changed for the privacy of our guests. Hi, Lori. Hi, Guy. So what are we going to be talking about today? Today, we're going to be talking about grief. And here's the letter. Dear therapists, I lost my wife almost three years ago. We would have been married 40 years on our next anniversary. For the last one and a half years, I've been involved with a wonderful woman whom I'm grown to love, but who lives 1,200 miles away. Although we talk on the phone twice daily, we get to spend time with one another just one week in every five. I am going stir-crazy, living by myself for the first time in my life. My depression gets deeper with every passing week, and I can't imagine living this way in the years ahead. I've been retired for several years, but I do host meetup group walks and pickleball events. I also volunteer some of my time to a literacy organization. Every hour I spend at home seems like days. I'm in therapy, but the results have been limited. I would be very receptive to any advice you can offer. Thank you, Richard. So first of all, I can understand how hard this is on Richard. He's been married for 40 years. He 
He lost his wife and he's really trying to adjust to a new normal. And I think that people imagine that somehow grief goes away and it doesn't. So it's been three years. He's going to miss his wife for the rest of his life. The question is, how can he hold on to some connection to his wife and also not move on, but move forward in some way so he can enjoy the rest of the time that he has? I completely agree. It seems like he's thinking in this way that I just have to get used to being alone and I have to get used to being without someone. And in part, he was in a long distance relationship in which he was alone most of the time. But I don't think he has to get used to being miserable. And it sounds like the long distance relationship is making him miserable. So I'm curious about the choice of the long distance relationship and why he chose to get into that and how that even came about. Yeah, so let's go talk to him and see how we can help. You're listening to Dear Therapist from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a short break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. A lot of people spend their lives wishing they had more time. The question is, time for what? What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Maybe you'd see a movie by yourself? Take a rejuvenating nap? Curl up with a good book? Or catch up with an old friend. Or maybe you just enjoy doing nothing for once. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dear Therapists today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Dear Therapists. I'm Lori Gottlieb. And I'm Guy Winch. And this is Dear Therapists. So hi, Richard. Welcome to our show. Hi, Guy and Laurie. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. And first, our condolences for your loss. Thank you. And we would like to hear about your wife. Just tell us about her, about the relationship. Yeah, we met. I was a grad student and was on an internship. And this was 1978, and we got married in 1981. Michelle died in 2020, September. So in six months would have been our 40th anniversary. 
And we have one child who's 33. And it was a wonderful marriage and tough at first. I was very young. She's four years older, but it grew to be a wonderful marriage and it just got better and better. And we both retired. She retired and then encouraged me to retire, which I did. So I thought that might be difficult, but it was wonderful. It was really wonderful. How old were you both when you first met? When we first met, I was 22. Michelle was 26. What was tough at the beginning? I was very young. I didn't have a lot of experience. I had a college girlfriend. I still didn't know how to be in a relationship. Michelle, being a woman and being several years older, I think she had to teach me how to be um, a good spouse. And it took several years. And our son wasn't born until I think we were married eight years. We did that intentionally. And by then, we had very loving marriage. You said you didn't have a lot of experience in relationship and you were very young. What was it about Michelle that made you want to commit to this person for life? <laughs> she laughed at my jokes. <laughs> and she was very funny. And she was also very worldly, more so than I was. She knew about art. She knew about, actually, the, the two of us could run a Jeopardy board you know, kind of mutually exclusive. And I loved that. She was intelligent. She read the New York Times. So did I. That was a very big deal. So what you're describing is that you were really good friends. You really could have fun together. You enjoyed the same things. You were really simpatico in terms of your interests. The fact that you said we can both run a Jeopardy board. You're both interested in world knowledge. It sounds like you really enjoyed each other on so many levels. You know, we did. And she was also out in the working world, which no one I knew was. I was living with two other students who I also went to undergraduate, and they were involved with young women who were also students or just getting established. And she seemed so grown up <laughs> and confident. So that's what attracted me to her. Yeah. Richard, you said that. Michelle retired, and then you retired as well. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how you spent time during your retirement and how that was for both of you. Yeah. I mentioned that she died about two and a half years ago, and she had pulmonary issues, cardiac issues. She was on oxygen the last couple of years. I was essentially her nurse, which is why I also retired. But she was very mobile. We'd made sure that I got Michelle a mobile scooter and a transport chair. So we had a very active social life, first of all. Michelle and I, every morning, we have two dogs. And in Michelle's last couple of years, we would sit and have breakfast with the dogs. And you would think a couple that was married 40 years wouldn't have a lot to talk about, but it was at least an hour more often too. Wow. We were always friends. We're getting <laughs> emotional. That sounds like such a beautiful relationship where even 40 years down the line, you have a couple of hours in the morning where you just want to talk with each other and you don't run out of things to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, we sometimes read the same books. Michelle and I were, even in this day and age, were newspaper readers, but it wasn't just about the news. But we were interested in things outside of our own personal experience. That was another commonality. We were intellectually curious. 
Did she have some time in retirement when she was healthy? No, not really. Tell us about when she got sick and what happened and how you found out. Yeah, she always had some cardiac issues and she was diabetic. And it was just very difficult more and more and more for her to breathe to the point where it was very hard for using the equipment to maintain a healthy level of oxygen. But she persevered. Michelle had a mobile oxygen device that we took with us, but that's one of the reasons she retired and that's one of the reasons I retired. She said she always had cardiac issues and pulmonary issues. How early in the marriage did these become apparent? Did you know this from the very beginning or did these become apparent later on? Michelle had gestational diabetes and she was told that it would return and it did and she was on insulin, lots of insulin. The pulmonary issues, every six months or so, there was a hospital stay for a few days. Even when you were in your 20s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was undiagnosed. I mean, really undiagnosed. But they just sent her home. And this happened time and time again. It was not debilitating. But maybe it started every couple of years. She said, I need to go to the hospital. And she would. Between the hospital visits, she was more or less fine. She appeared healthy. Did the two of you find that alarming that she would end up in the hospital and you had no idea what was causing this? The doctors gave us some false comfort. There's nothing wrong with her. She did not have a heart attack that we could detect. They would send her home and we would think that was okay. But it did get more and more frequent. And then her symptoms started presenting themselves, but that was into her 50s probably. Often when there's something chronic like that, where there's an emergency and then things are okay, then there's another emergency, ER visit, then things are okay. Over the years, you kind of sometimes get used to it. What was the point in which you, at least for the first time, started to think, oh, this might be the beginning of the end now? I think Michelle and I both assumed that I would outlive her, but neither of us expected her to die when she did. The hospital visits got more and more frequent. They diagnosed her with pulmonary hypertension. It was pre-vax COVID. The last time she went to the hospital, and I couldn't see her. And she was there for a few days in my town, and then she went down to Miami because they had equipment that they thought she would need. They allowed me to see her for a couple of hours and then she went down to Miami. I had a doctor call the day before she died saying, prepare for hospice care. And I'd been through this with my dad. I was a project manager in real life. So I thought I just went into that mode. I didn't feel sorry for myself. And I was ready to receive her and to give her the same kind of care with the the help of hospice staff that my father had. You know, I'd been through that before. When they said hospice and you went into project manager mode, did yeah. you think at all, so there's no treatment for her and she's going to die? Oh, yeah, because that's what hospice is. Yes. What was that like for you? I didn't have time because I think it was maybe 12 hours before I got a call at 
two in the morning. And the doctor said, I'm sorry, she doesn't have long to live. I think they tried me and I actually was exhausted and I fell asleep. They tried me about 11 p.m. and I slept through it. And then they tried me at two saying, we tried to get in touch with you. And now Michelle has only minutes. And I stayed on the phone and they told me she had passed. So you didn't have a chance to speak to her or to say goodbye to her? No. When Michelle was in the local hospital before she was transferred, they gave me a couple of hours with her. And then the transport came and I didn't expect that that would be the last time I saw Michelle. Richard, I'm glad you said you were a project manager because part of what I'm hearing is that in some of these most difficult moments, you went into project manager mode. There were things to be done like, oh, hospice, been through that with my dad, know what to do, let's get on it. And it sounds like you were in that mode, which was useful to you because it was kind of protective. I don't think you feel as much in project manager mode as you might if you were just present with what was going on. And my question is, at what point did you stop being in project manager mode and start to feel the loss of what was happening around you? So 2.15 in the morning, I called my brother and I'm in shock. And then he called people. I didn't get any sleep. And the next day I was in the kitchen and you could see from the kitchen into the living room where we used to be every morning you know, for a couple of hours. And I, I absolutely broke down. We were all in lockdown. And I don't know where I would have gone, but I felt trapped. But because we were in lockdown, Michelle and I had friends and I had relatives who were actually working from home. And they wrote in a rotation, they would talk to me after I walked the dogs at 7 a.m., and that's how I survive for two or three weeks. Of course, you know, even close friends and family will do that for only so long, but it really, really helped. I knew I would need an abridement group. And what am I going to do? I can't leave the house. Abridement, widow, widowers group. And I found an organization. It became an online community. It's called Stitch. And members would host events, including bereavement groups, widow, widowers groups. That's how I handled it. And that lasted for quite some time. And I got so involved with Stitch and met so many people. I think it was like five or six hours a day I would be involved in various events. You mentioned that you called your brother first. I'm curious about your son. My son was living with us at the time. He had his own medical issues. He was recovering and he was living with us. I, I forgot that. How old was he? He was 31. How long was he with you after Michelle died? Michelle died September 2020, and he was with me till April. Yeah, we had a fraught relationship. There was a history of that, but I have to say, we did not provide the support for each other that we should have. So while you were spending about five hours a day with Stitch at the bereavement group, I stopped attending the bereavement groups after a few weeks. It was very social. There were games and chats and anyway, meeting people from all over Canada, Britain, Australia, and all over the U.S. 
And what was happening with your son? What was he doing with his grief since you were living together? My son was uncommunicative before and after Michelle's passing. He might have felt the same thing, but I almost felt more alone, if it makes sense, with him in the house. And that had been for a while. Because of the disconnect emotionally between the two. That's right. I had a discussion with my wife. I said, you know that our son and I will be estranged. And Michelle said she wasn't surprised. It seemed like she accepted that. That had been the case for a while. My son was forced to come home because of his ailments. And now that's not the case. We actually have a good relationship that we haven't had since he was maybe in his early teens. And mm. we talk to each other at least once every couple of weeks. And he came here for a family reunion, and I'm going down to visit in July, probably. That's certainly helping. What changed, do you think? Maybe in the wake of Michelle's death. Maybe because we knew we just had one another in our nuclear family. It was just better. I mean, it was just close. I was in a relationship for a while through Stitch, by the way. He met my girlfriend when he came back from the last family reunion. That could have gone either way, but they really clicked. They baked together. They prepared for a brunch that I always host every year. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to almost be reunited. And I don't know what to attribute it to, but maybe after a delay, Michelle's passing. You said you've been highly involved with Stitch, literally hours and hours a day. And then you're online socializing and getting support in that way. And you said you even met this girlfriend. Right. Well, we broke up three months ago after nearly two-year relationship. Who broke up with whom? Ostensibly, I did. But my opinion had been a toxic relationship that I was grasping onto because I was used to being in a relationship. And she would want to break off several times and I would beg my way back. My younger self would not believe that I did that. I wanted to move up to where she lived and she nixed that. That's what I wanted. And that's what I wanted because that is what I was used to. You wanted to be in the same city with her. Yes. And she did not want that. I wanted to be in the same house as yes. her. <laughs> and you said she kept trying to break up with you. Why is that? I would be a bad boyfriend. For example, I try to censor myself, but I would talk too much about Michelle sometimes, and I would be very nostalgic. We saw each other one week in five. That was a huge issue for me. This was all to the unend for me, which was cohabitation. She would yell at something I did. One time I had a meltdown when we were preparing for one of these reunion brunches, and she threatened to leave. She threatened to buy plane tickets. I apologized immediately. But there was no flexibility there. There was no tolerance there. So you're essentially grieving the loss of Michelle when you meet this woman over Stitch. 
And you're within the first year of grief when you get into a relationship with her, which is why you're still processing these things and still talking about it because you're still working through the initial stages at least of grief. And she doesn't sound like she was supportive of that or sufficiently understanding of that, that that's where you were. On that point, she would say, but in an accusatory way, in my opinion, she would say, you simply haven't had enough time. You haven't stopped grieving. You need to grieve more. But this was an excuse to put some distance between us. Yes, but she's also correct in that you were still grieving. And I'm not saying that you yes. needed to have more time to grieve outside the relationship. You can do both. You know, if she were more supportive, you could have done the grieving while you were with her. I broke it off because she said I could not live with her. As abusive as the relationship was, in my opinion, I would have done anything to move to where she was in her house. Right. And that's why I broke it off. So when Michelle dies, the first entity that's there for you is Stitch, because you spend hours on it, you socialize on it, you play games on it, you're distracted from things in a good way when you're on it. And that was a real bridge for you because your son's in the home, but you're not supporting one another, at least not at that point. Mm -hmm. And then you meet your ex-girlfriend and your hopes are like, wow, if this works out, I can maybe move and we can live together and I can not be alone. I can have that companionship again. I can have that friendship again. And then when she says, actually, no, that's not gonna happen because we're not gonna live together. That's when you realize, well, okay, I've been putting up with a lot with the hopes of, of that happening. But if that's not happening, then really I don't want to be here because I feel lonely a lot and I want to be with someone full time. Yes. And then in your letter, you indicate that part of you thinks maybe you need to come to terms with being alone or learning not to be dependent on a relationship. And that seems so at odds with what all your experience has been, which has been like, I really need this. I'm much happier when I have it. Tell us about that. Why that thought about maybe I don't need another relationship. I just need to get used to the loneliness. Where did that come from? I think I got, in retrospect, involved myself with my girlfriend, perhaps for the wrong reasons. It became evident four months in that it could turn toxic. And I kept convincing myself, if only I did this, if only I said this, if only I didn't say this, if only I could be this way. And it went on and on and on. I pinned all my hopes on that relationship. But to answer your question, I thought that was a problem. That was a problem that I needed someone who was probably not a good match for me. You said you felt you needed someone. And I stayed in a very toxic relationship because I needed someone so much. Maybe that's a problem that I need someone in that way. And I'm yes. saying to you, it's a problem that you stay in a toxic relationship because you're afraid to leave it and be alone. It's not a problem that you fundamentally feel like you need to be with someone. Yeah. To illustrate the problem, within days of the breakup, I was on four paid dating sites and already dating. And it got me out of the house five, seven dates, dates a week, sometimes two a day. 
That's you in project manager mode, you know, starting to hit all the bases and do this and get onto it. You're a good project manager, so you don't just going to do one app and wait for things to happen because that can take a long time. It's competency to get yourself on all four. I'm still not sure I see where the problem is. You're saying, well, I did it with a bit too much desperation, perhaps a bit too much intensity, perhaps. All right. The problem is that I wasn't comfortable being by myself I, at home. I'm not comfortable being with myself. That is the problem. I always have to be doing something outside the home, always. It's interesting you went into project management mode during Michelle being transported and then she had to go into hospice and then you break up with this girlfriend because she doesn't want you to cohabitate with her and move there. And immediately you're on these other dating sites. Yes. So you're doing all the project management stuff. But when you do that, what happens is it takes you away from your feelings. It takes up all of the real estate in your mind. So there's no room for you to feel the feelings. And so you then say, okay, the problem is I can't be alone. But I think the problem is you can't seem to grieve. And because when you're alone, that is when the grief will come up. When you're not in busy mode, that's when the loss is present. So you'll do anything to avoid feeling those feelings. So I think we have two separate things that you're conflating. You're saying, I think it's a problem that I want to be with someone. That's not a problem. That's natural that you would want to be with someone. The problem is that you won't allow yourself to grieve. I don't know how to do that. I don't think I properly, because I didn't know how, grieve the loss of Michelle or the loss of this relationship. Friends of mine would say, don't date right away. Grieve the loss. I said, what does that look like? Well, I'm in another relationship. After 28 first dates and three second dates, I found someone. It's a good thing, yes, but I'm kind of second guessing myself. She's wonderful. But if it was too fast and too much, I mean, I'm there half the week. She lives an hour away. I want to go back to what he said just a minute earlier. Yeah. He said, what does it look like to grieve? I don't know what that looks like. I don't. Right, because you do keep yourself busy in order to not feel it. I yeah. think you feel it when you're home, because as Laurie said, when you're not busy is when your mind has time to actually start dealing with the loss of Michelle. And I'm sure that that makes you feel incredibly sad when you're home. How much do you think about Michelle when you think about her? Do you try and get busy or distract yourself? Do you sit with those feelings? Do you cry? Do you talk to her? Do you memorialize her in some way? Do you sit where you used to sit in the morning and think of her in the mornings? How and when is she occupying your thoughts? I see something in the house, of course. It was our house that would remind me about Michelle. It's only pleasant feelings. So you don't feel sad in that moment when you're thinking of her, you're not thinking of missing her, you're not feeling the loss of her, you're just having a nostalgic moment and it feels pleasant? There's no sadness? Less and less. And tell the truth, I think it's more not wanting to be here alone, not in a relationship, more than 
grieving for my wife at this point, two and a half years later. I wonder if it's hard to tell how much is not wanting to be alone and how much is missing Michelle, because it sounds like you really never did the grieving. You never let yourself have the time to just feel whatever you feel. Missing this person that was integrated in every way into your life for the last 40 years. So there's no one way, there's no right way, there's no kind of formula, there's no way you have to feel or should feel. It's just that I don't think you felt in whatever way that would be for you. And I think that that's why you keep second guessing. That's why you start to say, I'm not sure what I'm doing or about this current relationship. But I think that you're going to need to feel some of those feelings that you've been blocking so that you can feel a little bit more free. And that doesn't mean that you moved on. We say with grief, you move forward. Mm-hmm. But that person that you've lost is always there with you in some way. It's integrated into this new normal for you. And I just don't think you can integrate that until you felt the feelings. When you say, I have these pleasant memories, I imagine that it feels good because they were pleasant, but also sad because she's not there to have those two-hour breakfasts with, and she's not there to share your life with and to read the paper with and to have those conversations with that you loved having with her. Even right now, as we're talking and you're choking up a little bit, that tells us that the feelings are there. What's it like to just sit here with us right now and to feel a little bit of that choking up, that sadness? Yeah, I'm feeling sad now. And of course, I kind of thought that my grieving was over after some period of time and I got more involved with other things. And of course, as I described to you, at first it was horrible and I relied on other people and we had breakfast together every morning. We spend, you know, a retirement that I would think would be difficult was the best thing. What you just said was so important that you imagined retirement with each other. Yeah. And it turned out that retirement, you said, was the best thing. But you didn't get to have that because she died so soon. Yes. And so what's it like to sit with that, that loss? I see it all over your face, but I don't know if you're connecting with the sadness. What I could say about that is I'm looking for that again in someone else. That's how it feels. I think that's what you do with the sadness. You think of Michelle, a nostalgic feeling comes up. It's the morning, you think of something. There's an automatic sadness that goes with that because she's not here. And I think when you start to feel it, you have this reflexive, quick, instinctive response to, okay, project manage, do something. And then you immediately go to, I need to find that. So let me do 28 dates in 28 days. You do not let the sadness that's inside simmer even a little bit. You distract yourself away from it. And what Laurie and I are saying is that if you weren't in a rush to convert the nostalgic feeling or the lonely feeling or the I'm missing her feeling into let me find a replication, let me find a distraction, then you would just have to sit 
with a loss and that's where the grieving happens. And that's what you're trying to run away from, essentially, all the time. I am running away from that, which in my mind, I don't know how to do with it. I don't know what to do, how to use my time alone for that purpose. When you have the nostalgic memory of Michelle, you can literally pause and take a deep breath and try and locate where that feeling is in your body. If any sadness comes up, where are you feeling it? In your stomach, in your throat, in your chest, in your shoulders. And you can first identify where that's coming from physically. And then you can say something to Michelle about it. You can say, wow, I really miss you. I really miss mm -hmm. our morning conversations. I really wish you were here. You can talk to her. You can get in touch with that feeling and to be able to hold on to it a little longer, because I think automatically it kind of gets snatched away from you. But you can intentionally try and hold on to it and try and talk to her and try and address it. Makes sense. It would take some practice, I would think. Well, what if you tried that now for a moment? I don't know if you're close to that breakfast area, but if you just look around and if you just try and evoke a memory of her, nostalgic or otherwise, and maybe if she were here, if she were able to listen in some way, what would you say to her right now? I would probably talk the way we talked at breakfast. Do it now. Say it to her. I'm looking at a picture that was handed down from her folks. So, you know, Michelle, it reminds me so much of your parents. And at first it wasn't my style. It's very kind of Greek classic, but I've grown to love it because your parents and now because of you. I remember how much you loved it. And eventually I did too. I see so many things in the house that were so important to you. You decorated the house and they've become mine. It's a little sad because, because they've become mine, mine alone and not yours. But they also you know, evoke happy, happy memories. So I'm glad about that. You know, you started saying that and then you start choking up when you started saying they were yours and then you loved them, so I love them, but they were yours and now they've become mine because you're starting to deal with the fact that she's not here. And then you choke up and then you quickly say, but happy memories too, to kind of get away from that. Right, feeling. Yeah. yeah. But if you see just- Put the brakes yeah, on. Yeah, and just, it's okay to stay with choked up. It's okay to stay with, yeah, now they're mm -hmm. mine because you're not here and I wish you were here. It's okay to keep going there because that's how the grieving works. Grieving means that you are getting your mind and your body and your brain adapted to this loss, adapted to the fact that it's not there. You keep running away from it. So you do have to stay there and say these kinds of things and continue that dialogue with her. And I could do that. I've never thought about doing that, but Talking out loud, I would want to do it out loud like I'm doing with you. Right, but you wanted to run away from it pretty quickly. Yeah, that's true. I only need to focus and stay with it. I'm thinking too, Richard, that you didn't have the chance to say goodbye to Michelle. Yeah. And I wonder if when you're sitting at breakfast, you ever think about what you would have said to her or what if she were sitting there with you you'd like to say to her? Oh, I've thought about that. 
Oh, can yeah, you can you it, talk to her about that right now? Yeah, I'm sorry that we had a couple years of retirement together and it was so wonderful and we were really rediscovering what was so great about our marriage and I'm you know, I'm sorry I didn't I didn't really talk about that. That's one thing I'd like to talk to you about. And how it was cut short unfairly, but life is unfair. Do you see where you went with that again to the, it's almost like the happy place of, well, it's unfair, but hey, you know, life is unfair. So what can you do? Not allowing myself to grieve, to get emotional, to move away from it. Yeah, I I understand. Can you tell Michelle what it was like not to be with her when she died? Is there a picture of her that you can look at as you're saying this? Yeah, actually. I see you looking there. So go ahead and talk to her and tell her. Well, the last time I saw you, you were worried about the MRI. And that was my last conversation with you was trying to calm you and give you some comfort, which was good, but it wasn't enough. I didn't want that to be our last conversation. I still thought I'd have time. I didn't know you would die. Even after I was told that I had to arrange for hospice care, I thought we'll continue to have our time together and maybe together we could prepare for the end and there was no preparation. You're talking more about sort of what happened and what transpired Mm. than what it feels like. Is there a part of you that wishes you could have been there with her and held her hand as she was dying? Is there a part of you that wishes that you could have given her more support than the comfort you gave her around the MRI? Not that you could have, but can you tell Michelle what the experience was like for you of not being able to be there for her and then not being able to be there when she actually died and to have this unfinished conversation that if you'd known that you only had 12 hours with her, what would you have wanted to have said to connect with her, to say goodbye to her? Can you talk to her about that? Michelle, even if you couldn't hear me, and hopefully you could, I wanted to hold your hand and talk about (laughs) our 40 years together and our anniversary that was coming up. We had planned to have a big anniversary, and even though it was difficult for you to get away, we to travel the world anymore, we were planning something more modest that you could be comfortable doing, and I wish I got to do that. And if I was in the hospital with you, I would have talked about those plans, given you something and me something to look forward to. That's what I wanted to do, even if... We both expected the worst. I wanted to hold your hand and be nostalgic and talk about each other, our relationship with each other and how it progressed and how good it became and about the people we loved in common. You were saying that you would want to give her something to look forward to, but if you both knew that she was not going to make it, What do you think you would have want 
did to say to her about how important she was to you. Can you tell her that right now? Yes. I mean, you you changed my life. You made my life wonderful. You were my best friend in addition to us being married. And I appreciated you every day. And I appreciated that you retained your sense of humor, uh, even when it was difficult to move or difficult to breathe. And that you were brave. You were frustrated by restrictions, but underneath it, you maintained your sense of humor and the sense that living was fun and you had a great life lived. Can you tell her if she could hear you now what this loss has been like for you? And can you really stick to your feelings as opposed to the logistics of it? Okay. Not your fault, of course, but I feel a a sense of abandonment and a real sense of loss. I feel aimless and purposelessness because so much of my purpose and yours is to be there with one another. And I couldn't continue to enhance your life and to feel your love and for you to feel my love. That's what I miss. I think that this is an example, Richard, of the kind of thinking and the kind of feeling that you need to do to grieve. We both had to bring you back to, no, no, stay with the feeling, don't go to logistics, don't go to your head, stay with your heart, stay with the feeling. I think it's very difficult for you to get in touch with how you're feeling, let alone articulate it. And you can see every time you start choking up, you take a breath and then instead of staying with the feeling, you say something more casual that kind of bumps it out into your head or like, well, you know, you can't have everything or you say something that kind of takes you out of the feeling zone. And that's the practice that you need. And that will make me less avoidant, less anxious to leave the house at every moment. You're anxious to leave the house because you don't want to feel this. You're anxious to leave the house because it feels to you like, if I stay here, I'm just going to be so sad. Mm. But you mentioned depression in your letter. And there's a difference between depression and grief. And you're grieving because it's really specific. You are able to enjoy certain activities and you're even seeking them out for the distraction of them. A depressed person wouldn't enjoy those activities. Mm Mm-hmm. But a grieving person would because those activities are a distraction from the grief. And I think you need to reclassify in your head that when I'm feeling sad, it's grief. It's not depression. Depression sounds like something you should do something about. Grief is not something you do something about. You learn to tolerate the loss. You learn to sit with it. Mm. you're afraid to cry. The minute you start choking up, your breathing changes, your mouth clenches as if like, not going to let those tears through kind of thing. Mm. And again, it prevents you from actually going to that place. That's true. I mean, I never thought it in those terms. I thought I was depressed about being alone for the first time in my life, by the way. I always lived with somebody, college, roommates, whatever. And I thought the depression, and I called it depression, was simply from being alone and not with someone which I was trying to remedy. 
I didn't think of it as grief. You were trying to remedy that by looking for a substitute, looking for that yes. person that you can live with because you don't want to be alone because you've always been with someone all your life. And in the first six months after she died, your son was with you, ambivalent as that might have been. And then yes. soon after that, you had a relationship, so at least once every five weeks you were with someone. Mm -hmm. But it's this need to not be alone, and you're out there looking intensely for a girlfriend that can become a serious relationship super quick so that you don't have to be alone. And I want to suggest that you're not going to find a substitute for Michelle who will make you feel the way Michelle did, who you can spend the mornings mm. with in that way, who you're going to have the simpatico about everything, an alliance that was built over 40 years, even if the chemistry was there from the beginning. Well, I, I don't have 40 years left. You don't, but I'm suggesting that you need to find something that's different. We said it's not bad to want to be with someone, but you do have to learn how to be alone a little bit. You do have to learn to tolerate that and to deal with the grieving when you're alone. Because if you don't, you'll really indulge this impulse to just find someone else who will be with you full time. Even if the relationship's abusive, you'll tolerate it for that prospect because part of you feels like, if I can just be with someone, I'll feel whole again. And you won't in much the same way that it almost felt worse to have your son with you after Michelle died because of the emotional disconnect you felt. It's like I'm with someone, but I'm not feeling that closeness, so it feels bad. It might feel similar if you're with the wrong person full time. So part of you needing to learn how to be alone is to not rush into something to quickly put a patch over the grief so that you don't have to fully sit with it because that won't work. Yeah, I did rush, but again, 28 first dates, so I didn't jump at the first. 28 first dates in a short amount of time <laughs> is not the definition of not rushing. Yeah. I also don't know if you noticed this, but it sounds like the only time that you were really talking about Michelle was when you were with the other girlfriend. So you wouldn't think about her when you were alone because it was too painful but you would talk about her because you had the company of another person. Now, the girlfriend didn't like it, and she wasn't right. very compassionate about understandably. it. Understandably, yeah. Well, but mm. not so understandably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you just lost your wife of 40 years. I right. would think that she would have some understanding that you were yeah. grieving. But it's interesting that it was hard for you to tolerate the feelings around Michelle when you're alone, but you can tolerate them when you're talking to someone else. So you would talk about Michelle with the ex-girlfriend who was at the time and, your girlfriend. And by the way, with other friends. Right. Yeah. Right. It would also, you know, I mean, uh, uh, my guy friends were always part of couples. Now, maybe through the meetups and the pickleball, I have some very close guy friends, just guy friends, which I haven't had in years and years. When I talk to my girlfriend about Michelle, and these friends about Michelle, it wouldn't be Mount My Feelings, certainly. It would be nostalgia. It would be stories. I often told my ex-girlfriend when she complained about this, I said, this was my life for 40 years and I am my stories. Yes. And I started to just say, I did this. I experienced this. I like this and excised the word we. I found I had to do that, but not with my friends. But even 
knowing that she could not tolerate that you have a history, which everyone comes with, and that this history shaped you and is part of you and you're sharing your experience with her. You still wanted to live with her, even though she couldn't tolerate that. And I think that that's a very important thing to consider, that being in your grief was so intolerable that you would put yourself in a different kind of intolerable situation. I just recall what you said before about the difference. You said not moving on, moving forward. I was focusing on moving on. And I thought, yes, I shouldn't talk about my wife in front of my girlfriend as often as I do. In my head, I was moving on, not forward by including my my marriage, my past experience. I'm curious, in the first few months of after she passed, when you said friends were doing this rotational thing, were you talking about your feelings or were you just talking about stories? I was talking about my feelings. I cried and not just at the stories and my nostalgia. I would talk about my feelings. It was a matter of weeks. And then I moved on to Stitch and I talked about my feelings and everyone did. Because that's a bereavement group, but you were on it just for a few weeks. Why just for a few weeks? I don't know if I was uncomfortable or I think it was because I knew everyone's what everyone was saying. And there was a lot of repetition and I felt I was doing the same thing. So again, moving on. So you worried that you were maybe boring? And I felt they were boring me. I thought it's run its course. And these groups didn't start with me. I joined a group. So after a few weeks, I'm thinking, not only have I heard the same thing, which of course was very helpful to share for a couple of weeks, but that they'd been doing this for I don't know how long. You sound a little bit like your ex-girlfriend, that you had this expectation (laughs) (laughs) that why are they still talking about this? Shouldn't they have moved on by now? Isn't that funny? And I think that's because you were hoping that would happen for you, that you just didn't want to feel this and you just wanted to move on as quickly as possible without thinking that this is how they're moving, again, the difference between moving on and moving forward. This is how they're moving forward. Mm. This is serving a purpose so that they can do the work of grief and move forward in their lives. But for you, it was, I have to cut all this off and that will show that I am done and I'm ready and I'm going to find my next relationship and that's what it's going to look like. Yeah. And I would check in on occasion and it was the same people. And I thought, okay, been there, done that. I've gotten everything I could get out of it. And I'm moving on to the chats and the games. Richard, let's be clear that repetition is essential. When you're grieving, any emotional processing is really done by repetition. Our minds, our brain gets things really quickly. Our emotions take a long time to catch up to the understanding that our mind has. We can wrap our mind around the fact that someone's gone much more quickly than we can our feelings. And repetition is necessary. It's part of the grieving process because you're feeling it again, but maybe slightly differently this time. It's challenging, it's difficult because it's sad and it's painful. But by going over it again and again, you are getting your body and your mind and your heart especially adapted 
to a new reality. That switch doesn't happen on a dime. You really have mm. to massage it in and repeat it. I don't know if you've ever had a massage, but strokes are repeated numerous times. You don't just do it once because even the muscle needs the repetition to loosen up and to be able to unclench. Yeah, and perhaps these other members of the group, they understood that and I didn't. I thought they were rehashing in my mind and I understand what you're saying. That's what your girlfriend didn't understand. Hmm. She could not understand why you were still talking about Michelle, even though you had just lost her. Yeah. I don't know. Someone told me you don't want your deceased spouse to be the third person in a relationship, which resonated with me. There's a difference between being the third person in a relationship and telling your girlfriend something about you. And you were telling her something about you and your experiences and your history and your past that's all about the getting to know you. Yeah. It's not like you just showed up as this person who didn't have the last 40 years. It's very possible that five years down the road, 10 years down the road, you'll have a thought about Michelle. And when you've grieved properly, when you think about that thought and you'll turn to your girlfriend at that time, even if it's in 10 years time to tell her how you're feeling, you will get choked up. You will get sad because that ache mm. doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. It's appropriate when it comes to feel teary, to feel sad. There's nothing wrong with it. That's what moving forward means. You move forward with the pain rather than moving on from the mm. pain. And so in your understanding of grief, if you're talking about your feelings, it should be legit to bring it up if you feel it, because you'll probably feel it even yeah. for years to come. You, you kind of touch that live wire and suddenly, oh, that thing comes up and there's someone there to hear and to support and to give you a hug, like I hope mm. you would do if you're with somebody who's a widow. Yeah, this new girlfriend, it's only been a couple of months but like I said, we move very fast, probably too fast, but she seems more receptive. It's early days. And I can't say that I shared my feelings about Michelle's death, but I've certainly referred to her. Do you refer to your sadness? No. Why not? Well, she's a wonderful woman, married 40 years and divorced. And I don't want to burden her two months in. With Maybe feelings? Maybe it wouldn't be a burden. With feelings? Yeah. With your feelings? With, with those feelings. Maybe with any feelings that are challenging. That's interesting that you say that because, you know, we've been spending half the week already with each other. But I was thinking this afternoon, when I go down there, I want to say one thing I love about you is your sunny disposition, but I want you to know the only thing you've talked about that where you've shared your feelings is about your ex and the acrimony and the difficult divorce. But if you want to share other difficult things or talk about our relationship and me, maybe most importantly, and it's so funny because that's what I plan to tell her this weekend. That wasn't about your feelings, it was about hers. And what I'm saying is that that's what you run away from. Yeah. I believe that I wanted to tell her that to see how receptive she would be, to see if in turn she said, and you could tell me anything. I wonder what would happen if you were just direct with her and said, I'm really loving getting to know you. And I also haven't really done the grieving that I need to do for Michelle. 
I'm excited about getting into a new relationship. And I want to be able to talk about all of my feelings, including the feelings that I have about Michelle that still come up, that I'm still dealing with. I had a wonderful marriage and I'm feeling that loss at times. And I want to be able not to edit myself so Mm. that if we're in an elevator and they're playing a song and it reminds me of Michelle and I get sad that I can say something about that Mm. or a memory comes up or I'm just having a hard day because that will happen. In addition to the fun that we're having, because I want both, that I don't have to hide that part of myself with you. And I'm enjoying this so much with you. And I just wanted to get that out there and let you know that this is something I'd like to be able to be open with you about. How does that feel for you? It does. And I think I I said it. I was going to talk about that I would welcome this girlfriend to share her feelings so that she in turn but it was a test it was kind of a it was it was like a trial balloon that you were it's a test because we've done nothing like that we've done nothing like that it's right it's fun it's uh, not necessarily a problem you know at this point in a relationship it is a problem it is actually richard because we're saying you have to move forward with grief that means the grief will be with you it's a part of you 40 years of your life You can't put an X on it. These feelings, I gave in the example, in 10 years they might come up, in 20 years they'll still come up. Right. Well, I said it wasn't a problem. It's not a problem because it's so early. Relationships, Richard, are such that you set up a dynamic early on in the relationship. You set up the pattern. You set up an unspoken contract of what this relationship is going to be about and what it's not going to be about. And your contract right now is misleading. You are sitting with all these feelings. There is grieving to be done yet here. So that will absolutely be a significant part of your experience going forward. And she doesn't know anything about it. And your inclination of, I'll test her and I'll tell her that I'm okay with her feelings. And therefore, if she can do that, then I'll feel okay sharing mine. And a much better way to do that is to just share yours because it's Mm. essential that the other person that you're with can hear the grief, whether it comes up now or at any time. And having this conversation and bringing your whole self into the relationship will help you not make her another drug that numbs you from the pain of the grief. Mm -hmm. Because that's what happens. You're going into these relationships and all of these dates because you're putting the needle in. I don't have to feel... But if you really want this relationship to be sustainable, you're going to have to bring your whole self to it. And this way, she's not the drug that distracts you from Michelle. You're getting to know her. She's getting to know you. You're enjoying each other. That's Mm -hmm. great. But you're also being real with each other. And that's going to be more sustaining because what you and Michelle had was being real with each other. Mm. And that's something you're going to want in a relationship going forward. Yeah. And what guys said about a dynamic being established as we speak, I had never thought about it that way. I'd been thinking, well, wait, wait, it's too early, wait. But the pattern may have been established before. Richard, relationship dynamics are like cement. 
much easier to mold when it's wet, much harder when it's dry and like cement, it dries quick. So two months in is a lot if you're a bereaved widower who's not talking about his grief at all. Yeah. And I have to move from stories, which I've shared. To feelings. To feelings. Yes. Yes. So, Richard, we have some advice for you to try out this week. And the first thing is we would like you to join a bereavement group. We know that you felt it was a little repetitive the last time you were there. But as we talked about, this is the nature of grieving. And we'd like you to go in person to a group. And since you're really good at project management, we're pretty sure you could find one this week. Mm -hmm. And even if the other people are closer to the loss than you are in terms of time, you're still kind of a newbie at this because you haven't really done much by way of grieving. You've been pretty blocked for the last couple mm. of years. So we'd like you to say to the group when you go there, my wife died several years ago, but I'm kind of new to this because I haven't really done the work and I'm here to really process this loss. And we want you to see what that's like with this new perspective and understanding of grieving that mm -hmm. we've talked about today. Okay. Here's the second thing. Michelle is all over the home that you're in. She's all over the place, but you don't really talk to her enough. And so the other thing we'd like you to do is at times when you're alone at home, we'd like you to have breakfast with Michelle. Mm. 10, 15 minutes short. But in that time, we'd like you to sit where you usually sit and have what you usually had. And we'd like you to talk to her and say something like, you know, I haven't done a great job of processing this. And I really miss you, but I haven't really told you what it's been like to be without you. Mm. And I want to tell you. And I'm going to start right at the beginning what it was like that night that you died. And you don't have to do it all at once, you know, every day for a little bit, but share just one thing, not a story, a feeling about what it was like. Try and really stay with a feeling. And if you feel yourself getting choked up, remember those are your feelings, embrace them. It's okay, it's painful, but you'll stop crying. Crying, by the way, has numerous positive psychological functions like release and catharsis. It's a very useful physiological mechanism. So don't be reluctant to experience tears if that's what happens. But every morning that you're home by yourself, some breakfast with Michelle where you try and bring her up to speed. You have three years, so there's got to be stuff there. Just telling her what this was like for you in the moments that you miss her, in the moments that you think of her, in the moments that you wish she were there, that you wish you had more time in retirement with her, all those things. One meaningful feeling a day. And you'll know it's meaningful because when we help keep you on it, you got choked up each time. If you're not getting choked up, you're going to stories, try and bring yourself back to the emotion and just express it and the feeling will come. Okay. And it's short because we know that it's hard to go into those places. So these aren't the two-hour breakfasts that you used to have with her. These are 10 minutes. I see. I can do that. 
And the last thing is we would like you to talk to the woman that you're seeing now. Say to her, I just want to reassure you that whatever grieving I'm doing for Michelle doesn't stop me from developing feelings for you because I am and I'm really enjoying this. But we've spent the past two months where, unbeknownst to you, I've been holding back. I want to be able for both of us to bring our whole selves to this relationship. And because I'm still grieving, and I haven't really done the work of grief, so it's a little bit fresher for me, I want to be able to talk about how I'm feeling when the grief comes up, because I think that that will bring us even closer. We want you to ask her, how does that feel to you? You might even say something like, because there are moments in which I feel so sad and I don't want to have to hide those from you when it would feel actually really good. And then you put your arms around me or take my hand. That would feel really good. I would like to be able to do that. And I would obviously be happy if you needed that as well. Mm -hmm. And I understand now why there's also some urgency to this. Yes, because of the cement drying. All right. Good metaphor. So how does all that sound for you to try this week? Good. Thank you so much. Oh, our pleasure. And we look forward to hearing how it all goes. It'll do that. Me too. Great. I'm looking forward to performing these exercises. Wonderful. Thank you. It's really interesting to me because so many people don't know how to grieve. They literally ask, okay, but how do I do that? Even if I want to do that, I'm not sure how. They think the best thing to do is just numb. So if I'm not sad, I'm processing. No, processing is sad. It is painful. You can't run away or escape that. And I really hope that he got that message that, yes, it's an active, intentional process. I think he was aware that he was using distraction. But I think his solution for that was, how do I learn how to be alone versus how do I learn how to grieve when the pain comes up? And so I'll be interested to see what he does this week with the exercises that we gave him to help him get more on track with that. Me too. You're listening to Dear Therapists. We'll be back after a short break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood, a brand that's truly close to my heart because it was founded in my kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. Today, Laird Superfood boasts an amazing lineup of products, 
all crafted with the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Think functional mushrooms, real fruits and veggies. What makes us unique? We're committed to using only real ingredients, no artificial and no natural flavors. Two of my absolute favorites are prebiotic daily greens, really great tasting, and we've added some mushrooms to support your gut even a little more. Then there's our instant latte lineup. We've got instant mocha, instant latte, chai. If you want to discover Laird Superfood, you can do it at your local retailer on Amazon or at LairdSuperfood.com. And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase. So Lori, we heard back from Richard, and I'm very curious to see how he did this week with all those challenging emotional assignments we gave him. Hi, Guy and Lori. This is Richard. Just wanted to get back to you to let you know about my experiences completing the exercises you assigned. One of them was to have breakfast with Michelle, as I did for years. And you wanted me to talk to her about what it's been like to be without her and to express my feelings to her. And you wanted to know how I felt doing that. Well, the first couple of days, I felt very self-conscious and uncomfortable. Eventually, I broke through that and I felt mostly despair is how I would describe it. And I got very emotional once I cried. The next phase, I would call it, was I felt an intimacy again with Michelle and the comfort that would alternate with despair, but I felt I was making progress. The next assignment was to talk to my girlfriend and to explain that I may have cut short the process of grieving for Michelle and to reassure my girlfriend that continuing my grieving would not affect our relationship. I told her that I wanted to be able to talk to her about my grieving, which I believe would bring us closer. And my girlfriend readily agreed, but I left it there for now. I will talk to my girlfriend in specific terms about my grieving and the feelings it it conjured after I've had more breakfast conversations with Michelle. My third assignment was to join a grief support group I found one, they follow a workbook called Grief Share. This was the only group available on short notice, so I I really didn't look into Grief Share. Turned out to be a faith-based program, but I'm not religious and the references I found distracting. So I may look for another group that might be more helpful. Thanks so much, Guy and Lori, for your help. So Richard is really starting the process of grieving. When he talked about the evolution of the breakfast with Michelle, getting to a point just in this first week of toggling between despair and intimacy and feeling closer to her, I think that is what had been missing. He wasn't able to feel the despair 
and he wasn't able to feel the closeness. He would compartmentalize those. And I'm glad he's doing what he needs to do, which is to let himself feel whatever he feels to really stay focused on talking to Michelle about what it's been like since she's been gone, because he needs to hear it as much as he needs to have the conversation with Michelle. I agree. And I think that those first couple of days with that first assignment where he felt really uncomfortable, that's where he would have stopped previously. And I'm impressed that he really got the message of, no, you have to stay with these things. You don't run away from it at the minute that, oh, I'm uncomfortable, let me run away. So he stayed with it and he started to feel and he started to feel different things. And when he says, I'm not going to talk to my girlfriend yet, I want to have more breakfast, I think he's beginning to understand that he has a lot more to explore. And if he puts himself in the situation and stays with these feelings, he'll be able to move forward. And then when he has a conversation with his girlfriend, he'll actually have something to say. So he's really being persistent in a way that he wasn't before. And I'm so glad to hear it. And I think it was a great sign for that relationship, whatever happens with it, that she was so receptive to his saying, I'm going to need to talk about this. And whether it's this relationship or another relationship, he knows now that this is a part of him that you can have both Michelle there with you and you can move forward with somebody else. Absolutely. I'm also really impressed that within a week, he found a support group and attended. So that shows a lot of motivation on his part and a lot of readiness to really embrace this grieving process in a much more useful way for him ultimately. And I'm also glad that this long-term thinking then is, this is not the group for me because some of the faith-based things don't sit well with me. So let me find one that I relate to more. And I really heard the intentionality there in him saying that. I get the sense that he's understood that he needs to engage in a grieving process in a very different way and that he's really starting to do that. And I think an important message here is that sometimes when people look for a support group around grief or whatever the support group might be, if they go to one and it's not quite a match, they do need to find one where they feel comfortable. So I hope that he doesn't get turned off by this experience and think that's what it's going to be like, that he can find one where he finds his people, his philosophy, and where he feels comfortable. So Richard, if you're listening to this, I hope that you'll do a little more research. I know it was rushed and you didn't have a lot of time, but now you can take a little bit of time and research some of these groups and find one that feels right to you so that you have some support around you from people who really understand what you're going through. And I hope you can continue, Richard, to lean into the discomfort and to really process your emotions as you've started to do, because I think that ultimately you'll be able to come out of it in a much better place. Next week, a woman who wants to have a better relationship with her angry older sister wonders if that's possible. I feel so attacked by her and her emails that just she's made it clear my vision and my view of the past is the right one and the correct one and yours is not. If you're enjoying our podcast, don't forget to subscribe for free so you don't miss any episodes. And please help support Dear Therapist by telling your friends about it and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews really help people to find the show. If you have a dilemma you'd like to discuss with us, 
Email us at laurieandguy at iheartmedia.com. Our executive producer is Noel Brown. We're produced and edited by Josh Fisher. Additional editing support by Zachary Fisher and Katie Matty. Our intern is Alana Doherty. And special thanks to our podcast fairy godmother, Katie Couric. We can't wait to see you at our next session. Dear Therapists is a production of iHeartRadio. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.